Good morning. I think maybe before we start, it would be appropriate to, uh, to pray. Uh, Tim Jones, who's part of the church here, is uh, at the prison in Bristol this morning, not uh, because of arrest, but because of a ministry. Uh, he's there, uh, he's probably finished by now, but God can take prayers retrospectively. So let's pray for him. And actually, as, thinking about prison, there's been some very sad things in the news. Uh, just th- thinking, for example, of those children abducted in Nigeria by the uh, militant group. Just imagine the, uh, the pain that their families are going through, as well as the girls, of course. Let's pray for that situation. And, and maybe you've heard about this woman in Sudan, raised uh, a Christian by a Christian mother, married to a Christian. Uh, she's a Christian, but she's got a father who's Muslim. And she's now been uh, found guilty of apostasy. And although she's pregnant and is about to give birth, she's been sentenced to death. I think we should pray for her, don't you? And it's just amazing what people are going through in this world. So as we're sitting here in incredible comfort, uh, let's pray for those who are in far more difficult situations. And then uh, we'll come back and we'll think about a passage that says, for us, we're going to face difficult times too. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you care about every person, even uh, the forgotten uh, sitting in a prison cell somewhere. We pray for Tim that as he's spoken this morning with the team, that have gone. We ask that they will have been able to uh, shine the gospel into uh, some dark lives and, and give hope to people that are perhaps struggling with hopelessness. We pray that you would follow that message into the hearts of those people. And we pray too for these two situations that are just the tip of the iceberg, those girls abducted in Nigeria and this woman sentenced to death in Sudan. And we ask, Lord, that you would intervene. We ask that you would, through international pressure, through direct means, whatever it takes, Lord, would you comfort, would you give strength, and would you release them from these uh, horrific situations? Lord, we want to stand with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing very difficult times, and we pray that our hearts would be open as we think about where we're at and what we may face, that we would be eyes on you, responsive to you, as we look at your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this uh, series, I'll I'll mention that in a second. Before we get to that, I was thinking back some years, it's actually quite a few years now, to a time when I used to be a salesman with the RAC. Now, if you ever see a salesman for the RAC or the AA, feel sorry for them. It's a boring job. But it was, actually, it was a good job. We got to go to a venue and try to convince people to join. That was it. And if you sold, you made money. If you didn't, you didn't. So it was quite a simple proposition. And we would be assigned locations. And there was one day, I worked for two years, but there was only one occasion where I was assigned Sedgemore Services on the M5. It was a, quite a drive. And I thought, oh, really? So I got there, got there nice and early. I was the first car in the car park, and I got my stand out and set it up, and I was ready to try to sell to motorway drivers. Who you think would be the easiest to sell to? They weren't. For me, I preferred shopping centers. Nonetheless, that's where I was. And after a while, I was all kind of ramped up, ready to go. This car pulled in. I thought, here we go, Lord. May they need breakdown cover. So this car pulls in and and pulled in right next to mine, which I thought was a bit strange because I was parked off to the side. And this woman got out and she went to the boot of her car and and she pulled out a bucket and my heart sank. If you're not sure why, let me enlighten you. The discerning amongst us realize that people don't usually take buckets into service stations. That's not normal behavior. This was a collector for a charity. And the reason my heart sank was because Pictures of sad puppies tend to draw people's attention away from pictures of orange vans. 
and especially a little shake of the bucket, and it's all over. So she came over, and she stood next to me and started chatting. Lovely lady. Her name was Margaret. And we were chatting, and after a while I said, okay, Margaret, the way this is going to probably work best is if, if you stand just a little bit over there, and, and, and I'll, when people are on their way in, they can see my stand, and then on the way out, they can see your bucket and posters and all that stuff, and, and they may have some change, and it's, it's wonderful. She said, oh, that's a good idea. But there were no cars, so we carried on chatting. After a few minutes, she said something. I forget what it was. Maybe she gave a little praise the Lord or an amen or a hallelujah or something spiritual. And I thought, oh, cool. So I asked her, do you go to church? Yes, I go to church. Oh, great. You know, so I thought we'd have some fellowship. And we carried on chatting. And as we chatted, little red flags started to peek up. Little warning lights started to flash in my, in my spirit, I guess. Because the things that she was saying didn't quite match with what I would expect from somebody that went to a good Christian church. After a while, I probed a bit and and asked some questions. And and the thing that really got my attention was how she kept on saying that her teacher, Dave, no offense if your name's Dave, Dave's a fine name, my dad's called Dave, but this guy was called Dave. Her teacher, Dave, never gave his own personal interpretation. She must have said that four or five times. I'm thinking, why does he emphasize that he never gives his own personal interpretation so that she's parroting it to me? Does he have something to hide? And so we kept on talking, and the flags were kind of really waving like, this is not good, this is not good. And after a while, I said to her, Margaret, is Jesus God? And she said, no. Oh, no, he's the son of God. He's not God. And I realized I'm not dealing with a Christian. I'm dealing with someone who's been caught up in a cult. You see, there's, uh, there's people around who aren't exactly what they say on the tin. People who would claim to be good Bible-believing Christians, but they're not. We're in this series, and this series is, is called uh, Starting Well. Uh, Paul, uh, the kind of early church leader, one of the main leaders, he was coming to the end now. He was in prison in Rome, and he knew that his time was short. And, and he wanted the, this new thing called the church that was really just a few decades old. He wanted it to continue to start well. And so he wrote to his young uh, protege, sidekick, Timothy, and just basically to say, listen, Tim, here's the baton. Take this and run with it. Continue the relay race of the gospel. Keep it moving forward. And so the 83 verses of this letter that we have in our New Testament is kind of like Paul saying to Timothy, come on, Tim, keep it going. Don't take your eye off the gold. Don't let it drop because this is so critical. So really, it was kind of like, how does the church transition from phase two to phase three? They had a bigger phase thing going, kind of a global phase transition. Our phase is a little phase, but it's still a transition from one stage to the next. And that's why we're looking at 2 Timothy, because we want to make sure that as we move forward and as we start uh, Trinity Chippenham, we we really want to be on board with what God's trying to do. We want to be uh, alerted and encouraged and excited in all the ways that we should be. And the passage that we're looking at today is actually a warning passage. If you've got your Bible, uh, turn to it. Don't be ashamed if you need to use the table of contents. We're almost at the very end of the Bible, 2 Timothy, and we're in chapter 3. And Paul begins really with a warning. He says, Timothy, understand this. I want you to get this. This is really important. You cannot let this 
kind of skip past you. You can't just pretend all is going to be well and all is going to be easy. There's going to be difficult times. He says, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, Paul thought that they were in the last days. Okay, so he was expecting this to make sense for Timothy. Here we are, almost 2,000 years later, how much more last days are these last days, right? And so as Paul goes on to describe what he expected and anticipated, see if this fits with our experience of the world that we're living in. Let me just read these next three verses to you, starting at verse 2. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that ring true? Is that what we see in the world around us today? Feels like it, doesn't it? I'm not that old, but I remember the 1980s and the, the issues in the 1980s were a lot nicer than the issues in the 2010s. Some of you remember back and when we thought the 80s were bad. <laughs> That's kind of the way it is, isn't it? The world seems to go from bad to worse. The, essentially, we're not going to go through every word here, but what Paul says is this. Verse 2, people are going to be uh, loving self. They're going to be caught up with themselves in a sort of proud arrogance, which means, verse 3, the way they treat others will be very critical, very negative, uh, very hateful. And then back to self in verse 4. He says, you know, swollen with conceit, loving pleasure, not loving God. Notice how he, he uses that word lovers or loving five times in this list. He, he launches, he, he gives the start of it, the, the loving self, lovers of self. How, how does he put it? Lovers of self, lovers of money. And then at the other end of the list, he says, lovers of pleasure. Not lovers of God with a not loving good right in the middle. It's like he really wants to get this across. The heart of the human problem is the human heart. All of these sins, all of this bad stuff, it all springs from the inside. And it creates a mess. You could say, actually, that what he's describing here is kind of like... It's kind of like the opposite of the good news of the gospel. We talk about the gospel, the good news message that we have. This is the bad news. And the Bible tells us from cover to cover that the bad news is that we have a problem at the core of our being. That we humans were created to be in a love relationship with God where we're captivated and delighted by how wonderful he is. And then reaching out in love and care and concern for one another, always looking out for each other and therefore never needing to think about ourselves because, well, God takes care of us and our friends take care of us. And sin has turned that upside down and inside out. It's corrupted us so that we live in a corrupted creation where, where we think that the, the best king or queen or emperor of our own experience should be us. Me, myself, I, I'm the one. I know what's best for me. I know how to satisfy me. I know how to protect me. I know what's best. I know what I should do and what I shouldn't. I'm in charge. And the Bible says from cover to cover, that creates a mess. And all we've got to do is turn on the news, look around us, or even look in the mirror 
and we say, actually, yeah, that's true. I think I know what's best for me, but I mess up constantly. I chase what's going to satisfy and it falls short. I do what I think is best and people get hurt. And the Bible says that's the problem. And Paul's describing that with this list, and it's, it's compelling, isn't it? We, we look at it and we go, oh, what a mess we are as a human race. I suppose we could look at the situations that we just prayed about. Evil to the extreme. But, but it hits closer to home than that, doesn't it? You look at the culture around and society that we're living in, and you go, oh, what a mess. But actually, that's not Paul's warning here. Paul's not saying, hey, Timothy, be careful because culture's on a downhill slide. It's going to be messy. He's actually not warning him of that because that, I think, is obvious. We do need that warning. We should be careful that we don't just let the world's values become our values. But actually, the warning here hits closer to home. You know what it is? It's that that insidious evil seeps into the church. Now, let's pause before I prove the point. Let me just pause there. Churches reflect their culture. Okay, if you visit an American church setting or an Australian church setting or a British church setting, you'll find that churches reflect the culture. Leadership reflects the national leadership. There's this kind of desire for democracy in democratic cultures. You go to Africa or Asia, that's not their approach. And I've had the privilege of... Uh, teaching in some African and Asian Bible settings, Bible school settings. And, and once you start probing, you discover that often the, the problems in the churches are more dictatorial like the problems in society. Whereas maybe in our culture, there's more of a kind of insidious dictatorial, sort of a, a controlling influence or maybe money or something is what drives things. I mean, it's easy for church to reflect the culture. And just as that's true in terms of leadership, it's true in terms of the danger that what's wrong with society seeps under the door and so easily becomes what's wrong with the church. And Paul's saying to Timothy, you've got to be careful. As we head on into the next phase, we need to be careful. We can't simply look at the good times ahead. And I'm excited about the future. I'm excited to see people coming and being drawn to the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm excited to, to hear reports of different ones that are getting saved, getting baptized, growing, bringing friends. I'm excited to see families transformed and, and communities influenced. I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. But we cannot expect just a bed of roses. It's not just going to be smooth sailing because there are going to be individuals who actually say one thing on the tin but don't live up to that. And verse 5 is why I say that that's the focus here. In verse 5, Paul says this. In concluding the list, he says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I turn on the television, I haven't got a television, I turn on the news on the internet. Uh, I suppose if you're desperate, turn on reality TV. And you'll see the kind of sins that are described here, the kind of mess. What you don't tend to see much of is the appearance of godliness. You see, Paul's talking about people who give the impression that they're on God's side. 
And he's warning Timothy and he's saying, look, be trusting, be loving, be giving, be, be everything you should be, you know, in terms of church ministry. We heard last week that you've got to have, you know, inky noses, you've got to be in the word and you've got to have a kind heart as you deal with people. But recognize there are going to be some dangers. And we've got to be real about that. Not paranoid, not scared, just not naive. As we move forward, that actually some people are not what they claim to be. Now, I I suppose there's a scale, and I don't know where you fit on this scale. At one end of the scale, there's the paranoid and suspicious. Everyone you see is probably working for the government and is probably trying to kill you. Okay, that's one extreme. (laughs) The other extreme is, I, I believe the best about everyone, and if they say they're Christian, then they're Christian. And, and I just want to address that end of the scale and say, we've got to be careful. There's a lot of people uh, floating around in the church at large who actually are trying to do damage, whether they realize it or not. And how do we spot them? How do we deal with them? And what, what should we do about them? Well, he tells us, first of all, what we should do at the end of verse 5, avoid them. When we discover that something is not right, when something has been probed and tested and we go, hang on a second, this doesn't ring true, it is entirely appropriate and biblical to pull away from that kind of person. Okay, now, how does this match with, with what we heard a few weeks ago? We were, uh, we were looking at a video, many of us, and it was talking about um, expectations and experience. And what happens when you're expecting something, but there's a different experience and it creates a gap. And the, the, the person who was teaching said, look, when there's a gap, fill it with trust. Believe the best. And that's, that's good. I agree wholeheartedly. But what he said was, if you can't believe the best because the evidence pushes you back to distrust, go to the person and say, I want to believe the best. Help me to make sense of this. I think what Paul's talking about here is that sometimes you can do that. You can believe the best. You can go to the person. You can try to understand. You can get them to explain. You can do all the right things. And the more you look and the more you probe, the bigger the gap gets. And if you discover something that's spiritually dangerous, avoid, back away, get out from a place where that person can influence. This is serious, isn't it? This is major stuff. So how do we know if we're dealing with that kind of person? How how would you know if I'm that kind of person? How would I know if you're that kind of person? This is important. Well, there's two things that Paul gives Timothy here uh, to give some guidance on that. The first one is that these kind of uh, spiritually dangerous people are evident by their character. Okay, so the first five verses, we've already looked at them, it's about character. And and, uh, the first four of those verses really are talking about a misdirected affection. If they're motivated by love gone wrong, if they seem to be in it for themselves, that's a warning sign. If, under pressure, uh, these people manifest slanderous behavior, they go slanderous, they start attacking verbally, or they lack self-control, or they kind of explosive in temper. I mean, you could work your way through this list. Those kind of signals are signals that you might be dealing with something problematic. Okay, so the character, misdirected affections, and also marked by a missing authenticity. There's a kind of a pretense of godliness. They might make lots of noise about their piety or their passion for, for uh, things of God, but 
but there's sort of something plastic. There's something missing. There's something inconsistent, maybe a lack of lasting fruit or something. And you go, you know what? The character doesn't quite match up with the words. What it says on the tin is not exactly what I see on the inside. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying let's become paranoid. All right? I'm not saying let's, let's kind of go around suspiciously looking and saying, hmm, should I trust him? Should I trust her? I'm not saying that because actually the reality is that all of us fall short of this list, don't we? There are times where all of us manifest what you could say is a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. I, I was processing this week something in my own life and experience where I was going, oh, what happened there? Why did I, why did I get agitated? Why did I act like that? Now, I suppose the thing is that when you're pushed on it, and when someone says to you graciously and lovingly, hey, help me out here, because I I was kind of left feeling a bit hurt by that. If your response is, I'm so sorry, you know, that was genuinely, I was wrong, you know, if there's conviction, you're not someone that the, the passage is talking about. You're not a dangerous person. You're a normal person. But do be worried about someone, no matter how they're confronted, no matter how well, no matter how graciously, they always defend, always lie, slip, slide, step sideways, and never admit that they're struggling. All right? That's a problem. It's a character problem. And so character is the first thing to watch for. But the second thing that Paul says from verses 6 to 9 is the conduct. If you watch closely, you will see a certain conduct in spiritually dangerous people. First of all, he talks about how they captivate the vulnerable. And then he says they oppose the truth. Let me read it to you. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Kind of a creeping into households and preying on the vulnerable. There's three elements to the definition of the vulnerable here. Uh, First of all, there's a moral weakness. There's a kind of moral inconsistency in in these vulnerable ones. Secondly, there's a a kind of an emotional instability led astray by their emotions. And thirdly, there's a spiritual fickleness. There's kind of an always chasing but never making any progress. Do you know what I mean by that? People that they seem to be on a spiritual hamster wheel, right? They're sort of the next seminar, the next book, the next thing, the next craze, but they seem to be standing still and always ready for another conversation but never really making any progress. And, And Paul says those people are vulnerable and they're the ones that get preyed on. Now, in that context, at that time, he decided in in his experience, okay, it's likely to be women. I would say probably widows. Women in a a vulnerable situation. Now, is it just women? Is it just women are vulnerable, men? You know, I mean, he says also that these spiritually dangerous people are men. Is it that simple? Women are vulnerable, men are dangerous. Well, that's fairly accurate in some ways, isn't it? But 10 years ago, I preached this passage and I just went with that. And I explained that generally, not always, but generally speaking, there's a vulnerability for females. Generally speaking, it's men that are going to be false teachers. And I still say generally that's true, but I've seen both opposite since then. I've seen men who are vulnerable, just like is described here, morally weak, emotionally unstable, and spiritually fickle. That can be men too, can't it? 
and I've seen false teachers and dangerous influences who are female. It's less common, but it is possible. So I don't think this is hard and fast on the genders, but I do think we need to be alert to it. That the behavior of those who who are dangerous is that if you watch, they will seek out the vulnerable and they will prey on them. Imagine with me a a sort of a BBC nature documentary, unless you've been uh, in a jeep in Africa in person for a safari. Imagine the documentary version. There's a, a herd, I don't know what the collective noun is, but a group of gazelle or wildebeest or something. Uh, And they're there maybe at a watering hole or whatever. And then the camera pans over to some scrub or bush or something. And lurking behind it is a lioness or a a cheetah, something like a big cat, you know, something scary. And the cat is still as anything. Eyes fixed on that herd. What's the cat looking for? The cat is not looking for who's in charge. It's not thinking to itself, right, I want to take out Mr. Big Gazelle to prove how powerful I am. It's looking for the weak and the vulnerable, isn't it? It's looking for maybe a young one or a, a pregnant one or, or some gazelle with a limp. And if that weak, vulnerable one can become sort of estranged from the group, if it can distance a little bit from the group, bang, goes for it. And often, especially on TV, success from the cat's perspective. Not such a positive day from the gazelle's perspective, as you can imagine. But that's the way they work, isn't it? And so, as well as thinking, okay, we need to spot dangerous people, I I want us to think, hang on a second, there's something else we need to spot. We we need to to spot the vulnerable, right? If, If we're a community, and if we have an enemy who's out to pick off and prey on the individuals who are vulnerable, let's be a community that doesn't allow that to happen. Let's be a community that that says, you know what, I'm not going to let somebody drift away because I care too much. It's not that you're, you're, you know, chasing them or nagging them or anything like that, but it's not that hard to phone someone and say, hey, missed you this week. You doing okay? Hey, can can we get together? I've noticed in the last two, three, four weeks, you don't seem your normal self. I, you know, I just just care. I just want to make sure you're doing okay. Anything I can pray with you about? Let's be the kind of community that, that overcomes the interpersonal awkwardness of that in order to make sure that nobody gets separated from the herd. It's got to be that way, hasn't it? Otherwise, we're going to have people getting picked off by spiritually dangerous influences. At the same time as thinking about, okay, how can we watch the fringes? How can we make sure that nobody drifts sideways or backwards? At the same time, let's ask ourselves, Lord, show me if I'm vulnerable. Am I morally weak? Is there sin lurking and and kind of dragging me down? Am I emotionally unstable? Am I swinging too far? That's an indication that something's not right. Am I spiritually fickle, maybe chasing but never seeming to get any traction? Or even, just think about 1 Peter 5 where it says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you, but be sober-minded and be alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Maybe another indication is that we are weighed down with anxiety. And we find it that we we just can't quite offload our anxiety to a God who cares for us. And that anxiety kind of drags us out of the community. Ask yourself, am I that kind of person? 
that because of sin or, or emotional instability or spiritual lack of traction or just the anxiety of the things of life, do I find myself sliding away from the pack? We need to spot that in ourselves as well as in each other. And let's make sure that we're a community that says, you know what, we're not going to let someone slip away just because it's slightly awkward to chase them. We're going to love one another and we're going to reach out and make sure that the vulnerable and the weak and the struggling are actually at the center of the pack and not at the edge because we want to care for one another. We don't want to be like the world where dog eat dog, where the strong uh, win and the, the weak die. We want to be the opposite of that. So that when people see us and encounter us, they say there's something about that group. They care for one another in a way that I've never seen before. And I crave that kind of authentic, loving community and relationship. That's an attraction. Jesus said by this, will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's what it looks like. It's making sure that we don't let people grow vulnerable and become prey on the fringes of our church. And so that's a, a, a little bit about the conduct of these people, these spiritually dangerous. They, they worm their way in into houses, preying on the vulnerable, captivating them in some way. And then what happens? Verse 8, they oppose the truth. Uh, verse 8 is kind of a weird one. Uh, so we have to explain it briefly here. But Paul says, just as Janus and Jambres, write a note down if you've got twin boys coming, there's a pair for you. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, never mind, scrub that out. So these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Janus and Jambres. Ah, what a pair. I could be cruel and say, read through your Old Testament and find them, uh, which wouldn't be really cruel because the end would justify the means you'd have a great time in the Old Testament, but you won't find them. They're not written there by name. But, but these are names that have come down through Jewish tradition, and Paul's just quoting the names to refer to the uh, magicians in Pharaoh's court. Maybe you remember the story. Moses is like 1,500 years before Jesus. Moses is sent by God to the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, to demand that the people of Israel get released from slavery. And he comes to him, and he's got this, you could almost call it a trick. That's the wrong word. But he's got this sign. It, God says, Moses, take your staff and throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And that's kind of freaky, as you can imagine. Pick it up, it becomes a stick. So Moses marches into Pharaoh, does that, and Janus and Jambres, the court magicians, do the same thing with their sticks. Huh, awkward. They had the appearance of Moses' godliness, but their power source was different. With their dark arts and their black magic, they faked what was something, something that was good. Moses came to Pharaoh for the first of the ten plagues and turned the water into blood. And Janus and Jambres did the same thing. They were opposing the truth of what Moses was saying. Second plague, frogs. He brings this plague of frogs, they produce frogs. And you think, this is, this is a nightmare. But after that, it fades. On the third one, I think it was gnats. They couldn't do that one. It, but... For a while there, they were directly opposing the truth. They were working against what was right. When I chatted to Margaret at Sedgemore Services, I, I, we went at it for, not went at it, it wasn't a fight. It was, it was a really good conversation, but it was like seven, eight hours long. And she was talking about the Bible study she'd been in the night before, which was in the book of Titus. Now, by God's providence, I would, I'd been studying Titus, so I was like, okay, let's talk Titus. So I opened my Bible, and we looked at Titus together. 
And I showed her from Titus how Jesus isn't just the Son of God. He is God. And I tried to sow some seeds of doubt about this teacher, Dave. And we got to this point in the conversation where I said to her, Margaret, listen, I don't want you to accept what I'm saying because I say it. And just think about it. I'm a salesman, right? I'm paid to stand here and convince people to join the RAC and to part with money. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to convince them that the AA is not quite as good as it claims to be, the green flag is a bit of a joke, and that actually even Toyota Lexuses, they break down. I mean, I had lines for everything. I said, you don't want to believe me because I'm talking to you. I could, I could confuse you. I could trick you. What I want you to do is this. Would you go home and read the New Testament? Titus, anything you like. Read a gospel. You read it, not listening to me and not listening to Dave, with no books and no notes and no questions, just you and the Bible and God, and ask God to help you to see what it says. Would you do that? And she said, okay, I'll do that. I said, okay, so here's my question, Margaret. If you do that and you discover that what the Bible says contradicts what Dave says, are you going to go with the Bible or are you going to go with Dave? She gave the longest pause I've ever seen. I I wondered if she died on the spot. There was no response. And in the end, she said, I suppose I'd have to go with the Bible. I said, great. I'm going to pray that that's what you do. There's an encouragement of verse 9. You see, when I I left that day, I, I wasn't that encouraged. I was concerned for her. I didn't have the confidence of verse 9 in my heart because I went home, I called Melanie on the phone and all the way home I was praying and I was saying, God, would you please rescue Margaret? She thinks she's part of a church. She's not. It's got the appearance of godliness, but it isn't. Would you rescue her? Would you take Dave out of the way and enable her to see the gospel? And I prayed that and I went home and Melanie and I prayed for her and, you know, the weeks passed and I kind of forgot about that day. But verse 9 would have given me confidence because look at what he says in verse 9. After describing the conduct of these spiritually dangerous people, Paul says, they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Janus and Jambres show up again in the story in Exodus at the sixth plague. And at the sixth plague, when Moses brings the plague of boils, it's a lovely one, uh, they get boils and they run out of the place humiliated. Their power was shown for what it was, and it happened kind of quick. It doesn't always work that way, but this verse says, ultimately, those that are not genuine will show their true colors. They have confidence in that. We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to live paranoid. We we need to keep our eyes on Christ and and our arms around each other and just be alert. A few months later, just to wrap up the story, as we wrap up the message, a few months later, I was in Broadmead, more in my own territory, center of Bristol, shoppers. I kind of did better with those. And I was having a busy day. It was pre-Christmas, hundreds of people around. And this woman came up to me and she said, hi, Peter, do you remember me? It's always an awkward question, isn't it? And I, and I was like, um, actually, I've spoken to 500 people this morning. Uh, help me. And she said, my name's Margaret. I said, Sedgemore Services. She said, that's right. She was radiant. She, like, she was glowing. She was kind of, she was alive and smiling, you know. And, and I said, how are you doing, Margaret? And she said, I'm doing really well. I said, what's going on in your life? She said, well, I, I, I did what you said. And I read the Bible. And, 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 and I saw what you were talking about. And, and I'm a Christian now. 
I said, oh, that's wonderful. She, I think she'd even got baptized. She told me the church she was attending. It was a good church, a trustworthy church. I was thrilled. As we're chatting away for a few minutes, I said, hey, Margaret, by the way, what happened to Dave? You see, one thing I didn't tell you about Dave, just because I forgot, was that he lived next door to her. Like, he was right there, instant access. He was praying on the vulnerable. That's why I prayed, God, get him out of the way. I said, what happened to Dave? She said, oh, it's the weirdest thing. About six weeks after I met you, Dave had a heart attack and died. I had to process that. All right? I, I had to talk that through with God. Like, uh-oh, am I like, have you given me some Moses power here? You know, like, that's a bit scary. But actually, I, I was reassured by that. That God took Margaret's spiritual health more seriously than I did. He was prepared to do whatever it took to release her. If I'd have known that, I probably would have been scared to pray it. But you see, God cares. And God looks out for people. And if it's necessary, he will take someone completely out of the way who's spiritually dangerous. Our job is to be alert and to keep our eyes on him. We don't have to take him out. We don't need hit squads. We just trust the Lord. And we pray and we care and we watch for one another and we keep our Bibles open and our noses inky in the text or our ears inky as we listen to the Bible because it's only through knowing Scripture that we'll discern when something's wrong. And then we, we keep our eyes open looking at one another and making sure that we spot any signs of somebody struggling morally or spiritually or emotionally or with anxiety, something that would pull them to the fringe of the community and we reach out and we pull them back in. And then in the midst of that, somehow we become a community that's so profoundly attractive to the world that people see not us in our weaknesses and struggles. They see the goodness and the graciousness of Christ in action in his body. There are spiritually dangerous people. They're shown by their character and by their conduct. They do want to do damage, but we don't live in fear. Keep our eyes on Christ. Avoid them care for each other and keep our eyes on him as we move forward because we have exciting days ahead.